I didn't even have to pay him for that. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, we had our 20th anniversary celebration in here. Many of you were here for that uh, really glorious uh, Sunday uh, dinner and celebration. And we were uh, honored to have the mayor of the city of Upland to be here with us, and, and he spoke, and, and I, I was really glad uh, that he would uh, take time out of his busy uh, schedule to be here. And uh, just, to, just to have a sympathetic year, as it were. You know, we live in a time and a place in which uh, not every community is uh, sympathetic to the work of the gospel through a local church. And so we are blessed to be here by the providence of God in the city of Upland, in which uh, the mayor is, uh, um, professes faith in Christ and is supportive to the work of the gospel through this church. And it was really interesting because the following day, on that next Monday, we received an email from the, from the mayor's office asking if one of us, one of the pastors, could come to the next city council meeting. And they would like, the city council would like to present a proclamation to Foothill Bible Church to commemorate our 20th anniversary. And so uh, I agreed to go to represent you, the church, there. And don't try to read that. I'll read it to you in a moment. And uh, so uh, Monday, last Monday evening, I attended the city council meeting, and they asked if, if, because I was going to be there, if I would bring the invocation. And so that was an additional honor, and I was able to do that, represent you there. And they presented to us the following proclamation. And what was really uh, just amazing about this, I think, was they allowed me to write the proclamation, and submit it to them, and so I did. And uh, they gave me a template of, you know, sort of how these things go, but they said if, you know, if they had a different things in there, he said, if, they, if you want to change anything, you know, be our, our guest to change it. And so I said, yeah, I want to change the whole thing. So, <laughs> so, so I wrote the proclamation and then uh, received it on behalf of all of us uh, before or at the beginning of the Upland City Council meeting, and I guess it was on cable TV and, and all that uh, neat stuff. I even wore a suit and tie, which, um, which I don't ordinarily wear, and so that was, um, you know, it was a big deal. So, uh, so here's the proclamation. It says, Whereas Foothill Bible Church opened on June 25th, 1993, and whereas the mission of Foothill Bible Church is to make mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. And whereas there are currently over 400 members attending, and whereas since its founding, Foothill Bible Church has planted two other Bible teaching churches and sent out ten families into full-time Christian service, and whereas Foothill Bible Church celebrated its 20th anniversary on August 25th, 2013, now therefore, I, Ray Musser, mayor of the city of Upland, Jointly with the members of the city council, Glenn Bozar, Brandon Brandt, Gino Felipe, and Debbie Stone, do hereby extend our congratulations to Foothill Bible Church on their 20th anniversary and their continuing Christian service to the community and residents of the city of Upland. In witness where, uh, whereof I have heretofore, or hereunto, set my hand and caused the seal of the city of Upland to be affixed this ninth day of September. 2013, and then it's signed by the mayor and uh, members of the city council. So, you know what? That's pretty cool. 
That's pretty cool. That just doesn't happen uh, in many communities across this, uh, this land. And so we are blessed of God, beloved. We're blessed of God to be here in a community in which there is not open hostility to the gospel. In fact, just the opposite. There is a willingness and, and a, a receptiveness to this church in this community to, to do the things that God has called us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the community is going to immediately repent and embrace Christ. Don't have a massive revival, although that would be pretty amazing. And after last week, who knows? But um, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. In the providence of God, here we are. Here we are. And it's, I think, further amazing because in the, in the day and age in which we live, And in this day and age, I'm concerned about the health of the local church. Concerned about the health of the local church. The local church, in many cases, has has become like a rowboat in which there are a few people pulling hard on the oars, but in which there are many others that are sort of sitting on the side of the boat, dragging their feet in the water and going along for the ride. And it's concerning to me. Some of the symptoms that I observe of this situation of apathy within the local church are as follows. There is an increasing sporadic nature to people's church attendance. Church is optional on a Sunday morning for many. At any one time, there are missing sometimes as much as 20% of the congregation week to week. I'm concerned about people who maintain attendance at multiple churches. They'll go to one church for one activity. They'll go to another church for a different activity. They'll go to a third church for a third activity. And their spiritual life is fragmented. They're not nooked. Excuse me, they're not known anywhere and they, and they are not plugged in and ministering in any particular place. They're just moving about the salad bar. We have what I call the annual migration. It occurs uh, every year. It's somewhat predictable. It's uh, normally in the months of August and September. And that's when um, people reshuffle churches. It's time to get started, it's time to get serious, and, and people move from church to church, and, and you, can, you can predict it. I've been, I've been doing this for a long time now, and, and it just happens every year. It happens every year. The annual migration, the sheep move from pen to pen. I'm concerned about people who rely on internet preachers for their spiritual growth. There's a lot of good stuff on the internet, to be sure. And, and there's a lot of preachers that are way better than, than a preacher you're going to find in the pulpit of your local church. I, I get that. I understand that. But the internet preacher won't stand beside your hospital bed. The internet preacher is not going to preside over your funeral. The internet preacher is not going to be there when tragedy strikes in your family. The internet preacher is not going to be there to help you 
grow in your Christian faith one-to-one, eyeball-to-eyeball, and open the Word with you. You can learn a lot. But if that's your primary source, if, if that's your pastor, some sort of image on a video screen, you're missing something, something critical. I'm concerned about a growing resistance to the idea of church membership. To the, to the notion that many claim they're, they're part of the universal church. And thus do not feel the need to, to be a part, a member of a local fellowship, a local church. Beloved, when the New Testament uses the word church, the Greek word ekklesia, and it's used in the New Testament about 110 times. When that word is used, there are very, very few clear references to the universal church. Perhaps just over a dozen. But the preponderance, there are, there are 90 clear references, the use of ecclesia to the local church. It's clear. And so when we read the New Testament and, and we think about church and we read about church, we should visualize a local assembly. A local assembly. A local church. Predominantly, that is what the New Testament is talking about. There are a lot of misconceptions that, that people have about the local church, and maybe I can just begin by clearing up a few of them for you. The local church is not a club. It is not a club. Uh, it is not a voluntary association with optional membership. The local church is, is not a friendly group of people who share a similar religious commitment. The local church is not a, a local service provider seeking to win your business. The church belongs to God. It was purchased with the blood of his own son. It is not the result of human ingenuity, human organization. It is divinely conceived, a divinely conceived entity whose purpose is the glory of God through the transformation of its members. That's what the local church is all about. So this morning, what I want to do with you is study the local church. And we're going, to, we're going to look at so many passages of Scripture. So get your Bible ready, you know, like the, like the kids do, right? You know? Boom! Right? Who can find those verses? But here's how I want to do it with you. I want to do it in a question and answer format. I think that's the, probably the most helpful way to do this. And, I, and it's going to limit myself just to two questions. So two questions, a two-question sermon. Two questions and answers... Critical questions regarding church membership. Regarding church membership. Why? So that you will join a local church. So that you will join a local church. If not this one, then another. But that you will join the local church. 
So here they are. Question number one. Are you ready? Question number one. I hear it all the time, so I'm going to answer it now. Why don't we find an explicit command for church membership in the Bible? If it is so important, why don't we find an explicit command for church membership in the Bible? And that's a fair question. That's a very fair question to ask. So here's the answer. Are you ready? The reason we don't find an explicit command for church membership in the Bible is because the Bible assumes church membership. It assumes it. It is foundational to all that is is written in the New Testament. In fact, I I would be so bold to say that that official membership of some sort is one of the, the defining marks of the people of God. It is one of the defining marks of the people of God. Some kind of official membership. And it it begins at the beginning of the Bible and and it runs all the way through. All the way through. Let me show you what I mean. Let me, let me develop this with you a little bit. And it begins at the beginning of the Old Testament. And it begins with what, what for most of us, are our flyover territory, and that is the genealogical lists. The genealogical lists. Why are they there? They are there because they define for us who is in the faith and who isn't in the faith. And they begin in, in Genesis, and, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to turn you there. I'm just going to remind you of this thing. But, but they begin with the believing descendants of Adam. And in Genesis chapter 5, they run Seth through Noah. And they, and they trace the believing people. And then in Genesis chapter 11, you know, after the interruption of the flood narrative, they, they pick up and they go from Noah to, to Abraham. And so they they carry us along, helping us to to see and to understand that that God has has worked with a a remnant, with a group of people, and we can specifically identify who they are. I think about the book of Numbers. We love the book of Numbers, right? It, It opens and closes with a genealogy. It opens and closes with a genealogy, that, the long list of, of names that are hard to pronounce. It defines who are the people of God. But let me show you something really interesting. Turn with me to, to uh, Exodus chapter 12. Let me point something out to you here. Maybe you've not thought of this. Exodus chapter 12 Verses 37 and 38. Now, the book of Numbers, it it, it lays out the the genealogy, right? It tells you who's in. It tells you, at the beginning of the book of Numbers, who it it was that that left the land of Egypt in the Exodus. And then at the end of the book of of Numbers, it tells you who survived the 40 years wandering and are now going to enter into the promised land. But Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38 is very interesting. It says, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. And, and that number is the number of the genealogy. But then verse 38, 
A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with the flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. That little expression, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Guess what? Where did the mixed multitude come from? The mixed multitude came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And they they sort of hung on with the people of God. But they were never included in the genealogies. They're not included. They're not part of the people of God. They, They were those that were along for the ride. They were those that were sitting on the side of the rowboat, as it were, dangling their feet in the water and, and going along for the ride. The mixed multitude. Now fast forward in your, in your biblical uh, history to the time of the return from the Exodus and, and go to the book of Ezra, right before Nehemiah, and to Ezra chapter 2. I'm taking these places just to remind you that in the Old Testament, the people of God kept records, membership records. They knew who was in and who was out. In Ezra chapter 2, you see beginning in verse 2, the, the number of the men of the people of Israel, and then it, and it begins to give them to you, the, the sons of Parash, 2,172, and on and on it goes. Name after name, number after number. Well, how do you figure out there are 2,172, by the way? I just look at the crowd, right? And I say, "Uh, that's about 2,172. They count. They counted them. They knew who was in, and they knew who was out. And they counted them. Now, this, this Old Testament tracking... Of, of the people of God, who's in, who's out, carries forward into the New Testament. It, it wasn't just some Old Testament thing that happened around the time of the Exodus or, or around the time of the return of the exiles from the captivity. It carries on into the New Testament. I'm going to turn you to, to, uh, to John's Gospel, chapter 9 and, and verse 22. Now, John chapter 9 is is the account of of the man who was born blind that that Jesus heals. You remember this account. And Jesus heals him. And and the the religious authorities of the day, the the Jewish religious authorities, they can't deal with this. This is is outside of their paradigm. And so the only way they can deal with this is is to basically say the guy, he must not have really been blind. Because we know that Jesus is, is not of God, and, uh, and so therefore he couldn't do a miracle. And so the miracle must be false. And so the only way the miracle can be false is if the guy was never really blind. So that's their approach. So they call the, they call the guy's parents. And they say, okay, level with us. He was never really blind, was he? And they say, hey, you know what? Ask him yourself. He's old enough to answer. Why would they do that? Well, John tells us why they would do that. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Banished from the synagogue. 
excluded from the people of God. Now, how do you, how do you banish somebody from a synagogue? Well, you have to have a list of who's in and who's out. And so they kept track of such things. There were actually membership lists of the synagogue. They knew who was in and who was out. And they had already decided, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus as Messiah, we are kicking you out, cutting you off, banishing you, putting you out. Now, it wasn't just a Jewish thing. It, it carries forth. So we go to, further into uh, the book of Acts, and we get to, to Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Peter's preaching here. And, and then Luke gives us this little, little editorial insert. He says, so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added. That means that there was already an identifiable group and 3,000 more were added to them. Well, how do you know there was 3,000 more? They counted. They counted. They knew who was in and who was out. Added to their number. You turn a little further to the right, uh, chapter 4 and, and verse 4. Further preaching, and it says, And many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. They are continuing to keep records. Who's in? Who's out? As we move further into the, into the New Testament, we, we see further evidence that the people of God were clearly identified by, by some kind of membership list, some kind of membership role. And there was a, a certain subset of the people of God who were eligible for, for the benevolence ministries of the church. That is, those who were widows in need. A certain subset, a group of widows, were to receive financial support from the people of God. Well, does that mean that every widow in the city of Jerusalem who was having financial trouble got money from the church? Absolutely not. There was a certain group that they would have identified, and they actually put them on a list. So you go to Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 6, and that's exactly what you see. Verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. It was a, a list of those who were to receive assistance every single day. And there was a dispute about some that should have been on the list, or people thought should have been on the list, that evidently weren't on the list, or were being overlooked if they were on the list. And so it, it has to be resolved. And, of course, they, the, uh, the apostles call the church together, and they propose a resolution to the problem. Well, this list idea continues, because if you get into 1 Timothy chapter 5... It actually tells you, or Paul tells us, how you got on the list. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. We know it's a list, because it says it's a list. 
1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if, and then it, and it lays out a whole series of qualifications in order for her to be put on this list to be, become uh, someone who is cared for by the people of God. This necessitates that they know who is in, who is out, and that they could actually know them at the level of, the, of their walk of faith in order that they could meet these qualifications or not. There is no anonymity here at all. People know who are part of the family of God and who are not part of the family of God. The whole concept of elder oversight. The whole concept of elder oversight assumes that there is, a, there is a way to distinguish a specific group of people who the elders are responsible for. We can see that in, in the book of Acts. So we'll turn you back there to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is writing to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is a local church reference. A local church purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ that the elders are to be on guard for this specific flock, this specific group of people who, in this case, reside in the city of Ephesus. The elders know exactly who they're responsible for and who they are not responsible for. You can see it in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Where Peter writes... In verse 1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, or as the NIV translates it, under your care. Exercising oversight, not according to compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, and on he goes. Who are the elders to shepherd? They are to shepherd the flock of God under their care. How do they know who is under their care? The only way they can know who is under their care is there needs to be some kind of process of identification, some sort of listing, some sort of membership in which people say, I am part of this flock, you're responsible for me. I am not part of this flock, you're not responsible for me. Church discipline. The process of church discipline assumes that the local church knows who are members and who are not. You have to have a public knowledge. When when it says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17 to tell it to the church, how can you tell it to the church if you don't know who the church is? Will you take out an ad in the local newspaper? I mean, if it's a universal church, what are we going to do? Post it on the internet? It's a local assembly in which the people are identified with one another and there is absolutely no doubt. You're part of it, you're not part of it. The epistles, all of those New Testament letters, 
are written to local churches. They are written to local assemblies, local congregations. And, and they were read publicly in those congregations. Well, then that again assumes that you know who's in and who's out. If we're going to gather the church at Thessalonica to hear the letter from Paul, then we need to know who to tell to come and who not to worry about it. So every time you, you read Paul, you know, to the, to the saints at, at Philippi or to the saints at Corinth or so forth, they're, they're talking about a local church that has an identifiable membership. Here's one more to think about. God keeps a list. Did you know that? God keeps a, a list of those who are part of the people of God and those who aren't. He keeps a list of those who will inherit eternal life and those who will not. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There is a book of life. And the people of God are recorded in it. So the the concept of identifying who are part of the people of God and who are not is woven into the pages of the Scriptures from the beginning, from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Why don't we find an explicit command for church membership in the Bible? The answer is simple. It's because the Bible assumes membership. It assumes it. There was no need for them to address it as a command. It was a foundational assumption. If you had trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you had placed your faith in him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and if you had publicly proclaimed your allegiance to him through the waters of baptism, then you were part of that local church, and they could identify you as such. And they would write your name down on the rolls. Second question. Second question, what are the benefits of membership? There used to be an old American Express ad, right? It said membership has its benefits. Well, guess what? There are, there are benefits to being a member of a local church. Did you know that? There are actually profound benefits. Deeply profound benefits. And there are probably many of them, but, but here's four of them that I want to talk to you about this morning. Four benefits of being a member of a local church. Benefit number one is evangelism. Evangelism. When Christ redeems us, he places us into a a new society. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2 and and verse 19. And that new society is, is comprised of people who formerly had no reason to gather together. Nothing to attract themselves to each other. That's why I say it's not a social club. It's not a group that have gathered around for for some purpose. It is is a divine work of the Spirit of God in which he, he brings people together who ordinarily would have nothing to do with each other. And he and he brings them together. In fact, people that are that are frequently have been hostile with one another, he he brings them together. And he he reconciles them to each other. You can see this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. 
where Paul's there writing about this, this renewal. That is that we are, we are transformed into the image of Christ. And he says, and in this renewal, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul gathers up various people groupings of his day that would normally have nothing to do with each other, in fact, would probably be at each other's throats. And he says, because of the work of Christ and the Spirit's application of that work into the lives of his people, they come together in, a, in this, this assembly that Paul further goes on to, to talk about and describe as a body, as a family, or as a community of believers. It is a new society brought together by the work of the Spirit of God. And this new community lives together in peace with the bond of love holding them together. The love of the Spirit for them and the consequent love of each other. We enter this community visibly by faith in Christ. We make public our faith in Christ in the waters of baptism. We renew our commitment to this community of believers on a regular basis through the public ordinance of communion of the Lord's table. And we we set ourselves apart as a new society, a new community, a family, a body. Now think with me. I mean, if there's anything this world lacks, it's unity, don't you think? I mean, this world is fractured. People are at each other's throats all the time. Everybody's looking out for number what? One. Everybody wants to look out for number one. Everybody's striving, clawing, backbiting, climbing, stepping on each other, trying to gain an advantage over those that are around them. That's what characterizes the world at large. And then you come into the church. And it's different. In fact, it is so different. It is, it is otherworldly. People, people will look at it and they go, wow, that's weird. That is weird. I mean, this is the place where in order to go up, you go down. Hey, climbing the, the ladder of success in the church, you climb down. You go down to go up. It's a place where, where people forgive each other. And a place where people receive forgiveness. It's a a place where people demonstrate care, concern, love, one for another. It's a place where people gather together to worship and glorify the, the risen and living Savior, Jesus Christ. It is very, very, very different than the world at large. I mean, maybe it's been such a long time for you since you have have stepped out of the world that you have forgotten what it's like. It's a rough place out there. 
It's doggy dog. But you come into the church, and it's otherworldly. It's otherworldly. And beloved, listen, in, in a world that is, that is broken in sin, it is a very appealing to come to the, into the people of God and to see the love and joy and peace and so forth that exists among the people of God. And that is incredibly evangelistic. Incredibly evangelistic. How do I know that? Because Jesus says that it will be so. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 13 and verse 35, Jesus says this, and it's profound. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. Love for one another. As we live together in community, in a local fellowship as the people of God, and when all the things of the world that ought to drive us apart have no influence over us, but instead we live in in an entirely different way that speaks of the resurrected Christ. There's no other answer for it. There's no sociological phenomena that can explain it. It is supernatural, and it speaks of God. So the first benefit of membership is, is evangelism. The second benefit of membership is sanctification. The second benefit of membership is sanctification. And according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, God's purpose in predestination is to transform his enemies into his children so that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what Paul says, Romans 8 and verse 29. The agent of change is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who both instructs and empowers the believer to live in a Christ-likeness. We call the process sanctification. That's a theological term we use, sanctification. And John Piper is right on the money here. And When he says this, he says, sanctification is, and I quote him, is a community project. Close the quote. Sanctification is a community project. Beloved, all the, all the exhortations in the New Testament to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ are given in the context of a local church. They're given in the context of a local church. And they can only be accomplished by, by a commitment to and participation in a local assembly. Think of the fruit of the Spirit with me. Right? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, right? Self-control. You cannot grow in those things by yourself. My wife will attest to you that when I am alone, I am the most patient person you have ever met. (laughs) I put Job to shame. Right? It's when I'm with others that patience all of a sudden becomes tested. When love has to have shoe leather attached to it. Peace and kindness and gentleness and and all of the fruit of the Spirit of God find their outworking in community. 
in community. You want to know how you're growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ? Get deeply involved in a local church and you'll figure it out. Say to young folks who are getting married all the time, you know, they say, oh, well, we really love each other and, and you know, we talk so much and, and uh, you know, we just don't, really don't foresee ourselves having many problems and, and, uh, and then we smile and we say, yeah, you're right, you're probably saints. You know, just wait. Just wait. You'll, you'll find out how patient you are once you get married. Right? It's the woman thou hath given me, Lord. Right? <laughs> it's in community, beloved. It's in community that these things flesh themselves out. Hey, listen, the New Testament is filled with one another's. Right? One another's. They just constantly are driving us. The New Testament is driving us back into a community of believers to grow in our likeness of Jesus Christ as we begin to live like Christ among a group of sinful people. A sinner among sinners, saved by grace. So Paul says things like this in in Romans 12 and verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another. Same chapter, same verse, he he says, give preference to one another. Romans 15, verse 7, accept one another. By the way, the context of of that one is a great one because it's it's talking about people who who have a profound difference of opinion with, with regard to their conscience, what behaviors and activities they can engage in. Accept one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, serve one another. How about this one? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, show tolerance to one another. Tolerate one another. How? In love, Paul says. Not by holding my nose. Not by avoiding them. In love, show tolerance to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Because lying is an attack upon the unity we have in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, admonish one another. That'll test my sanctification. 1 Thess chapter 4, verse 18, Comfort one another. Comfort one another. First Peter 1, verse 22, fervently love one another. The, the idea here is to be stretched to the limit in your love for one another. First Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another. And there are many, many more. And in fact, if... If you join Pastor Art's Sunday school class, he's going to unpack them for you. The one another's of Scripture. They all assume membership in a local, identifiable body of believers, a local community fellowship. It's the only way they make any sense at all. Listen, if you desire to grow deeply in your spiritual life, 
if you really want to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, then you need to become deeply involved in a local church. You need to be rubbing shoulders with wretched sinners all the time. Wretched sinners saved by grace, just like you. That's how you'll grow in the likeness of Christ. Beloved, I think I can say that the, that the greatest concentration and display of God's sanctifying grace occurs in the context of a local church. A local church. You want to experience the sanctifying grace? Then become intimately involved in a local church. Benefits, evangelism, sanctification. Third benefit, elder oversight. For this, I'll turn you to Hebrews chapter 13. And verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Third benefit of church membership is elder oversight. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. They keep watch over your soul. They keep watch over your soul. God gives leaders in a local congregation in which there is a relationship between the congregation and its leadership such that they watch over your soul. They watch over your soul. And the the statement that they watch over your soul, beloved, implies that there's a danger out there or dangers out there. There is no need for anyone to watch over your soul if your soul is not in danger. Well, the fact that the New Testament says that you have to have people watching over your soul tells you there are dangers out there. Very real dangers. There are dangers from false teachers, according to Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. False teachers are a danger to your soul. And the elders are there to help protect you. There are spiritual pitfalls along the way, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And the elders are there to watch over you and to help you to avoid the pitfalls. And if you fall into the pitfalls, to, to rescue you out of the pitfalls. To restore you, bandage you up. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, there are, there are spiritually weak Christians. Now, I'm not sure in my own heart yet whether, whether there are people that are perpetually weak, and that's what Paul's talking about, or whether people are just moving along a stage of life in which they are in a period of weakness. I, I don't know yet. But I do know this, that, that the leadership, the, uh, the elders of the church are there to, to help the weak. To help the weak. Whether they're perpetually weak or more momentarily weak. To help the weak. Watching over your soul. Listen, the book of Hebrews itself is an example of the watchful role of the shepherd. When you read the book of Hebrews, it is filled with warnings. Warnings to avoid the dangers, the the pitfalls that can cause you to stumble 
It's interesting also, by the way, that here in verse 17, there's we call the emphatic use of the pronoun, the pronoun they. And what that just means is, is that, it, that it emphasizes that the, that the leaders here have a personal obligation. We could translate it, they and no other. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they and no other keep watch over your souls. It's a very personal kind of thing. Very personal. This word translated, the, the verb translated keep watch, the, the etymology of that word means to, to chase away sleep. To chase away sleep. They and no others keep watch. That is, that is lose sleep over you. You ever think about that? That the elders of this church lose sleep over you. They wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and your face appears and your problems, your, your hurts, your heartaches. And they can't go back to sleep. So they pray. And they pour themselves out. Because they care about you. They have been called by God to care for you. Not other Christians in the city of Upland. You. Who were part of this local fellowship. What are the benefits of membership? Evangelism. Sanctification. Elder oversight. And the fourth. And this one may catch you by surprise. Assurance of salvation. One of the benefits of membership in a local congregation is the assurance of salvation. It is through our membership, our, 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 our association in a local fellowship that we receive assurance of salvation. Did you know that? Assurance of salvation is not this, this individual thing. It's like me and, me and Jesus. You know, I don't need anybody else. It's just me and Jesus. That is a very dangerous way to think about things. Very dangerous. Listen, let me just put it this simply. Membership in a local church establishes the boundaries of who is in the family of God and who is not. Do you understand that? The local church is there to to verify or falsify our claims to be Christian. It is the local church that verifies our claims. It is the local church that falsifies our claims. How do they verify them? As we live in community together. How do they falsify them? As we live in community together and we don't live and believe as a Christian. Hey, listen. The the guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? who's sleeping with his father's wife, he thought he was a Christian. He thought he was a Christian. It takes the local congregation to say, no, you're not. I don't care what you say. You're not. You're outside the people of God. How does the local church verify and falsify our claims to be a Christian? 
twofold way. First, doctrinal clarity. Doctrinal clarity. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The church, Paul says, is the pillar and support of the truth. It is the local church, and in particular among its elders, that resides a collective wisdom and understanding of Scripture that exceeds the knowledge and life experience of every single individual believer. Do you understand that? It resides collectively in these men of God who the Spirit of God has placed over us. Resides a collective knowledge and understanding of, the, of what it means to live the Christian life that exceeds that of any single individual person. We need the group. Hey, it's easy to become really zealous and unbalanced in our theologies. Very easy. Particularly if we're young and we haven't, we haven't had the opportunity to have our, our belief system, our theology, uh, tested by, 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 and refined by the wisdom of older generations. It's easy to be unbalanced. So the elders of the church, they need to be men who not only know the Scriptures, but have demonstrated their lives to be ordered according to the Scriptures. And there in that plurality resides a collective wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures that give us assurance of salvation. Hey, Paul says it this way, uh, warning young men, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he says, flee youthful lusts. Flee youthful lust. But Paul's not talking about sexual lust. In the context there, he's actually talking about wrangling about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, verse 14. Flee youthful lust. In other words, debates about theological minutia. How easy it is to get trapped in such things, huh? As the local church correctly understands, correctly interprets, correctly teaches the scriptures, it provides the theological fences outside of which it's, it's neither wise nor safe to go. Listen, where do you think the cults come from? They are breakoffs from local churches. They begin by someone who rejects what God has established and says, hey, It's me and God. He's speaking directly to me. And they go off and they start their own thing. They have rejected what God has established. The local church. The pillar and support of the truth. Another way the local church provides this this assurance of salvation, that it verifies or falsifies the, the claim to be Christian, is the issue of moral purity. Moral purity. God is very, very serious about moral holiness among his people. Paul writes this way, right, to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Do not be deceived. He says later in the same letter, chapter 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Those who practice such things, such moral impurity, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a falsifying of their claim to be Christian. Very serious. Very serious. Listen, the goal of church discipline is to be restorative. It is, to, it is to bind up the broken, to bring them back. But there is a time when a man or a woman, by their, their constant and flagrant violation of, of the moral codes of the New Testament, prove themselves by their lifestyle to be living in a way that is not Christian. And of course, God alone knows the condition of someone's heart. But the New Testament is very clear. That man or that woman who persists in living in flagrant opposition to the moral will of God must be put out of the fellowship. We must falsify their claim to be Christian and put them out, and we do it for the sake of their own soul. Because they are deceived. They are deceived into thinking they can live that way and still inherit the kingdom of God. And you cannot. You cannot. Maybe up to this point you haven't really understood the necessity of the local church. Maybe you've been ignorant of such things. Not anymore. You're not ignorant now. So what do you do? What, do you do? what are you going to do about it? If you are not part of a local Bible teaching church, if you are not regular in your attendance, if you are not active in your service, if you are not faithful in your financial support, then you must get involved immediately. Immediately. For the sake of your own soul. Maybe you're involved, but you're not a member. Maybe you're involved, but not a member. And and you've kind of had the attitude, I don't need to be a member. Beloved, you do. You do need to be a member. You need to declare yourself to be part of the people of God that meet in this local place. The elders need to know, are you in or are you out? Are we responsible for you or are we not responsible for you? Are you merely here until you get a better deal? And then you're going to go somewhere else. It's not optional. It's not optional. Listen, maybe, maybe, maybe I haven't persuaded you with, with this whole thing. Let me, let me just close it with this. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Maybe, maybe you're saying, well, I am a part of the membership here, even though I'm not officially a member. Well, if, you're part, if, you, if, you, if that's your, your attitude, then what you're saying is you're under the submission of the elders. And if you're under the submission of the elders, according to, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, obey your leaders and what? Submit to them. And your leaders are telling you to do what? Become a member. Become a member. Yeah, that's what you got to do. Last week, we baptized 32 people. The Spirit of God was moving last week. I heard testimony of people, they, they were like wondering whose hand was in their back pushing them down the aisle. And we're not going to do an altar call for membership. Okay? At least not in that sense. But I am going to direct you. The Spirit of God is, is put it on your heart now. And I pray that He has. Right after service, I'm going to send you out to that connection corner and I want you to sign up for the foundations class. Four-week class. Help to get you to understand the church. We're not asking you to make a blind decision. It should be an informed decision. It's a serious decision. But sign up, attend that four-week foundations class, and at the end of that class, you'll be given a membership application. And those of you that have already been through the class and you've received your membership application and it's still sitting on the corner of your desk, fill it out. Fill it out and bring it in. Because we, we want you to know the fullness of life in Christ. I'm out, of, I'm out of here now for five weeks. Hope you'll let me back. I hope when I come back, I'm going to see the membership role just like surge. I've been praying. I'll continue to pray for you. We love you. We love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you never leave us stagnant in our Christian faith. You're always moving us forward in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we confess, our Father, that it's not comfortable to be moved. It's never comfortable. There's a sense within all of us that we would just as soon stay where we are. But, Father, Life, one of, the, one of the signs of life is movement, animation. And so, our Father, we pray this morning that you would animate your people. That your spirit would work in them and, and apply the scripture to their hearts. They would feel it. And that they would move. Oh, Lord, may you continue to bless this church. Thank you for 20 years of gospel witness in this community. Thank you for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray for your continued protection and our evangelistic witness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved.